0: Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Thanks, as always, to Kate Kingsmill for the last three hours. The Distant Sky will not be back next Wednesday, there will be a summer film, some mystery, amazing program to delight your senses while uh, Kate has a well-deserved summer break. And uh, you've just tuned in to bite into it. We've got Dan Salmon. Good evening. Paul Callahan.
1: Been a long time.
0: It has been. And Indeed. I'm Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for joining us. It's, uh, we've, we've got a cracking Last bite episode of the year up for you. We'll be uh, speaking with Dr. Dang Nguyen on AI and automated decision making in news and media. It's about time that we jammed AI together with uh, news and media that we love so much.
1: <laughs> Just smoosh them together. That's
0: it. Yeah, We've done AI and everything else. <laughs> AI and the workforce, AI and your privacy, it's, AI... And...
2: <laughs> it's definitely been the word of the year, hasn't it? certainly has. Yeah.
0: It's an, an ongoing theme and uh, we expect to see lots more of it next year too. Oh, hooray. But before we get into that, <laughs> let's hear some tech news. Dan, with that level of enthusiasm, <laughs> you must have some news for
2: us. I do have some news and this is something that that warms my heart a little bit, uh, to be brutally honest. Um the I, I, I don't normally give props to massive law firms, but um, Morris Blackburn uh, has uh, started a class action uh, against um, one of our big retailers, JB Hi-Fi, essentially arguing that the um, if you've if you've ever gone out and been asked, do you want to buy the extended warranty, and you might feel pressured into purchasing, uh, you know, a, a couple of extra years on the on the inherent warranty in a product that you purchase, turns out that that might actually not be necessary because. The Australian Consumer Law has got you back. Um, essentially, um, the argument that uh, that uh, Morris Blackburn and the class action is making is that uh, extended warranties are unnecessary because all of the um, coverage that you would get from an extended warranty are actually inherently uh, your right under Australia's Consumer Law. So, if something uh, you know is faulty at purchase, obviously that's uh, that's covered under the Consumer Law and under under standard warranty. But also, you know, five six years down the track, if things aren't working as they seem or if there's a fault. That appears, then you have a right to actually go back and say, "Hey, um, I'd like this repaired, or I'd like this replaced." Um, ideally, repaired. We don't love waste here, but um, you know, if, if if it is irreparable, then uh, you should you should uh, rely on re- uh, government regulations to have you back.
0: <laughs> well, that's good news. Around the time that lots of people are thinking of updating all their e devices and that sort of thing,
2: absolutely. So, just a little reminder, definitely. So, if you if you do go to one of the big box stores and um, they've got their they've got their uh, you know shiny signs at the counter there because we all still obviously go to the counter to buy things. <laughs> but if they, if they ask, it, hey, hey, do you want to give us an extra 150 and we'll give you an extra year or two on the warranty, say no thanks.
0: It is even more tempting on those online shop fronts. I think. You know, just the little option button, you know, are you sure you don't want to purchase the extended Ooh, warranty? Oh, that, that, that terrifying <laughs> feeling
2: of will I be covered, you will yes. be covered. Also, um, you know, don't pay more for your extended warranty than they're going to charge you for the uh, postage of $17 for, you know, getting it around the corner. <laughs>
0: There you go, some some (laughs) solid advice there from Dan and props for the Australian Consumer Law. Absolutely. There you go. Uh, Fitbit, in similar news, has been fined $11 million by the ACCC, another regulatory body that has consumers' backs. Um, They have had to admit that they made false, misleading or deceptive representations to 58 consumers about their consumer guarantee rights to a refund or replacement after they claimed their device was faulty. So it's very much related um, territory. there was something like a $190,000 payout per customer in that case for those 58 consumers. So big win by the ACCC, obviously, you know, that's an outsized um, sort of benefit that they're getting ma- made, but they want to make an example of this particular um, instance. So there you go. Uh,
1: yeah, and sticking with what feels like uh, government regulations butting <laughs> up against... <laughs> Butting up against uh, massive companies. I mean, this isn't is the EU, but I think it's sort of related to, to local uh, activity as well. So Apple have, in the EU, have offered to open up its tap-and-go mobile payment systems, um, basically in a move to sort of maybe st- stem some antitrust uh, regulations. Obviously, Apple has been... Uh, impacted by those EU antitrust regulations around things like USB-C and their phones, um, batteries uh, as well, or replaceable batteries as well, so this is just another salvo step in a a sort of a long-going interactions. Uh, It's just an offer from them at this stage that you have to kind of like take a look at it, but Potentially, you know, we know that with our Mikey system here, um, that is one of the issues about why people on iPhones aren't able to kind of tap on and tap off um, compared to, you know, London. It has its Oyster system, which just uses your credit card. So this is maybe, I know we're getting a new Mikey system soon. Are we? we have been told we're getting a new system. We are. We're getting it. It's coming. Um, So, yeah. So interesting, again, the pressure that those government regulations and the EU are able to bring uh, to bear because it is can be significant fines and um, companies risk fines of up to 10 percent um, of global annual turnover oh, they're found guilty which of is just untenable antitrust rules which mm. is i
2: mean if you're apple that's that's the hundreds of millions of dollars up there not a
1: small amount of money if you're mr tim apple this is travelling around this so true. we'll see we'll see how that rolls out but interesting that you know the technology; they keep butting up against it. I, I,
2: I, as someone whose day job is as a regulator, it's nice seeing regulators actually show their teeth. <laughs> They're having
0: a good
1: year. <laughs> They're
2: having a good year.
0: Excellent, excellent. Hey, did either of you happen to see the previews of Google's Project Gemini, which is their rushed release of their competitor for Chat GPT?
1: AI that can it detects ducks. That's that seems to be.
2: Hold, hold on, D- ducts as ducks as in oh, yeah. like like yeah, the, the animals, ducks. not yeah. not not like you know tubes in your in your ceiling. I know yeah, it's the accent. No, I'm, I'm, yeah, sorry. <laughs>
1: no, that was a genuine. Google's duck detector.
2: Duck detector. It's duct tape. Sorry, Paul. That was. That was. It's been a while. I I, I do apologize. Sorry, Vanessa. Vanessa, you were were talking about
0: ducks. (laughs) I was talking about Project Gemini, named probably for an old sci-fi film that I'm going to have to watch and understand the significance of after this. But um, yes, it is a multi-modal chat large language model, so that means you can input via text, voice, image, uh, which is a feature that ChatGPT has now in the latest version. They didn't have it in the first version. Uh, they've got different scales of versions to run with different resource constraints. I thought this was interesting. So the nano version of Project Gemini runs on Google Pixel smartphones right now, for example, but there's also like an ultra mode and a pro mode, which use, you know, much more processing power. And that's another significant thing to be to be managed. Um, and then we've got, uh, well, I don't know. I think, you know, there was a bit of talk about in the demo, people thought it was a real live demo and then um, then they, uh, sorry, I'm getting distracted by someone at the door. If you're at the door and you're our guest, come through the door now. The light is on if you can hear us. <laughs> it's um, it's live radio, people. Uh, it's very exciting. Just to pick that
1: up, Vanessa, I like, the, the think there was a bit of a sense that, uh, I mean, Google came out, came out and sort of basically revealed that they were using A future version of the technology that they had perhaps edited some of the prompts that they had used so it wasn't necessarily running uh, in as real time um, uh, that the video suggested Um, so if anyone has watched it uh, it may not be where it's at they are claiming that google are obviously claiming that it is you know significantly more advanced significantly more powerful than uh, than chat Gbt they would um but when people actually got their hands on it there was it seemed a bit less uh Structured, I say it claims that it hallucinated a lot more. I love this idea. Like, I've,
2: <laughs> It's know. such so, so a terrible
0: actually, metaphor.
2: We're a- actually actively applying anthropomorphic yes. terms to these things now. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, it's,
0: and we have to use that term advisedly and unpack it every time, but it's just not happening. It's yeah, become
2: standard. So,
1: just I mean, for those of you who aren't following AI news, which, which I haven't necessarily been as strongly, but this <laughs> idea of hallucinating is basically when the AI gives a false answer. Um, That's
2: not hallucinating. That's being wrong.
0: <laughs> and but also to even call it being wrong is not great because it assigns you know the sense that this thing understands right and wrong, which it does not. Mm. It's literally predicting the next word that it thinks should be coming at you. Yeah. 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 Anyway, enough on that. We've had a, a big news section. Um, Dan, what do you have for us? I'm going to run out to the front of the building and get our guest.
2: This is uh, this is a new one from uh, Velociraptor. They're back. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
0: You're listening to Triple R's Bite into It. It is a Wednesday evening. It's our last show for the year. We have Dan Salmon, Paul Callahan, and I'm Vanessa Tolka in studio. And we've just been joined for our final guest for the year. Dr. Dang Nguyen is a research fellow at the RMIT University node of the ARC Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision Making and Society. That is a lofty title. We're going to find out all about their ambition. Tonight she joins us to discuss the new research report released this month, all about AI and automated decision-making in news and media. As lovers of independent media, we care about this very deeply and want to know more. Welcome to studio.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: It is great to have you here. Um I did have time to read the report today. Fantastic! I thought it was mercifully, um, you know, uh, beautifully edited and not as long as some academic oh, reports you. can be. <laughs> so first of all, that's a positive, but um, it was really great to to look at how you'd broken down the area. So first of all, I wonder if you could provide for our listeners a bit of an overview of the research paper Um which is focusing on like key technologies and emerging challenges relating to AI and automated decision-making in news and media. And, you know, if you can unpack what does AI and automated decision-making mean in that context? Yeah,
3: yeah, for sure. So, um, the report is the first major report to come out of our uh, Center of Excellence for Automated Decision-Making and Society, uh, based at RMIT University here in Melbourne, uh, but with notes in universities across Australia. And so in this report, what we wanted to do was to present the latest research in AI and automated decision-making in the news and media environment. Um, I should say, though, that this report was um, a massive collaborative team effort. So 22 researchers from across our center co-wrote it, and we came together to highlight what we... Understand to be a rather striking feature of the current phase of media automation uh, that we're all currently going through, uh, which is that machines are increasingly intimately involved in the production, uh, in the distribution, but also um, in the reception and consumption of news and media. Uh, so what that looks like in our everyday life is that we're all... Uh, or, or, or you know, most of us are really used to um, search engines finding newsworthy information for us. Um, we're used to recommender systems um, curate um, newsworthy information for us. Um, we are also used to how social media platforms um, deploy automated content moderation systems uh, to manage their content, and also to to a much less visible extent, um, how automated markets um, kind of buy and sell advertising in in you know fraction of a second.
1: But that's that, I mean that that seems like a huge amount of work, but I, I so hopefully we'll get to dig into some of it. I'm really curious about just unpacking the title a little bit like what what do you think the distinction is between like an AI system and an automated decision system like where's the nuance there
3: yeah so um at the center we're deliberately taking a historical approach to understanding media automation so with with the pretty explicit understanding that you know automation has always been part of what Make media interesting. What makes media work, right? Uh, you know, if if we could want to go back to the steam presses of the nineteenth <laughs> century uh, up until now, where we saw that machines are no longer just making things; they're making decisions. And AI, which is um, a fairly recent development in in that longer history, um, is is promising to kind of turbocharge all of the automations that's already happening across the sector.
0: I think um, while our listeners are no doubt conscious of the, the rise of AI and the progress this year, I think that when they think about how it might be affecting news, probably a lot of these areas that you've researched are quite invisible hmm. to, to us as consumers. So let's unpack a few of them. So with respect to search engines, you know, what did your research find about hmm. some of the the challenges, say, with different publishers and, hmm. you know, and how their content's getting out there and what we might see?
3: Yeah, so it's been kind of a big year for search with, you know, the, uh, the 25th anniversary of Google Google search earlier this year and with some of the conversations around how, um, uh, you know, search was going to replace or, or you know, at the very least, displace. Uh, 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 sorry, such was going to be replaced or displaced by emerging technologies like generative AI. So I think for a while that we were pretty concerned that people were just too taken by kind of the conversational style interaction with chat GPT that they would prefer to, when they look for a piece of information, go straight to chat GPT rather than, you know, having to sift through pages and pages of Google search. Um, luckily, I feel like that kind of conversation has died down a little bit now um, since people realize that chat gpt tends to hallucinate a lot um, since people realize that you know in the public version of chat gpt there's a quick cutoff date of its knowledge um, mm-hmm. so that conversation has died down for a little bit now um, in terms of research, what we're really interested in at, at the center, and this is one of the main projects that we're working on in terms of search, is whether personalization is playing a big role in the search results that we're receiving, right? So whether when I enter, you know, some search strings to find out about a topic, whether I get the same results as, as you do when you're logged into your Google account. Um, and this is a, a, this has been a long-standing kind of concern within the research community uh, because of the idea of a filter bubble, which I think has now become pretty mainstream in our popular discourse. Right. So if I only get exposed to information that would confirm my existing biases and, and my uh, existing beliefs, then that's not great for society. Um, the alternative, the better alternative, would be uh, to be exposed to a wide variety of voices so that at a very least you could get uh, a more complete picture of a topic now um, so in order to study personalization at the center we've launched a project called the Australian search uh, experience project Uh, and within this project what we did was uh, we mobilized data donation as a method uh, to collect uh, information about what Australians um, are receiving when they use Google search and that, that's very much an ongoing project. So um, we're still analyzing the data. But some of the preliminary findings have been surprising us. So actually, we found that there's actually lit- limited evidence to suggest that personalization actually exists within search. Um, actually, you know, the, the kind of results that you get are more uh, dependent on the kinds of topics that, that, that you search for rather than, you know, being personalized to who you are as an individual. Um, so that was surprising um, so right now, in terms of search, what we're really interested in studying um, is actually the diversity of sources. so whether search results um, actually show us a variety of sources um, rather than just showing you know results from a few handful of dominant publishers
1: that that is. That's fascinating, I think um, I just want to take a little step back and because I think because what what one of the things that's interesting about this research is the is how embedded it is in in society and I'm curious about you know what you're identifying there about like AI and filter bubbles and and search out engines as a sort of um, as an algorithmic hmm. entity do you think that do you think we have the kind of a, enough of a systemic literacy? Do you think people mm-hmm. understand that like, the algorithm that is a search engine is different to the algorithm, even though it's more complicated, that is AI?
3: That's right. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that we have a sufficient public understanding of those really nuanced differences, um, and which is why it's so exciting to work at, at a, a cross-disciplinary centre. So we're able to consult on the expertise of our more technical colleagues in the computer sciences, but also uh, we're able to get them to work on you know, social sciences questions that we really care about.
1: And is there anything, like, coming back to those questions about, like, like ideas around filter bubbles and trends, do you think that this research will, is your aim for the research to sort of go out into the public realm and, like, to really start to change that conversation and mm-hmm. that deeper media literacy
3: Hmm. yeah so yeah i'm really excited uh for for the outcomes of, of this particular project to be coming out in the next uh couple of years um and you know having the opportunity to come in, to come on a show like this to talk about it and to just maybe blow a couple of minds that whoa actually such results aren't personalized um is <laughs> a, a really good thing to do
1: i'm gen- my mind is genuinely blown like that <laughs> as an outcome
0: yeah, and it's mm. it's those sort of things that you hear rumours about, and you never actually see the research to mm. confirm or deny, and you've only got your experience, so you've got nothing to compare it with. So it does create these mysteries around mm. what is happening inside the black box of the algorithm. Yeah, you know, what is driving it, and to what extent does advertising money, you mm. know, influence uh, the content that's coming around? You know, you hear that with um, advertising online that um, you. You mentioned a little before you know the the millions of decisions being made and money changing hands and deals happening based on you know the profile of who you are and and you know what you're coming at and who, what they might be able to sell you um so tell us you know what do we know about the challenges in the advertising technology mm. landscape and you know how that is um irreversibly tied to the delivery of, mm. of news and media
3: yeah yeah that's such a great question and and it's Again, another surprise uh, 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 for me working at this center is how little we know about automated advertising or, or, or programmatic advertising, which essentially is you know the backbone of the commercial web, right? So whenever you click on a link and you get served an ad, you know tons and tons of automation happen in the background for that ad to be served directly to you. Um, and so the report outline, you know, the really Complicated, but hopefully in a rather simplifying and accessible way. You know how programmatic advertising works um, within you know point 0. zero seconds of a click uh, of an article. Um, yeah, so. Emerging changes and challenges within this, this arena, though, um, is how Google is going to phase out um, third-party um, uh, uh, um, data collection and cookies uh, within its browser in, ne- in the next year. And what we're anticipating within this area is the rise of first-party data. So we've seen news organizations like The Guardian and The New York Times starting to, to invest in building bespoke advertising platforms. Yeah, um, all well,
0: those messages that our listeners might have seen, you know, this is not a paywall, you know, but can you please sign in so that we can track you and know exactly yeah. who you are and what you're clicking on? Yeah, yeah.
3: so that's first-party first, first party data collection, which gives, you know, readers and subscribers the option to opt into giving the data that they're comfortable sharing with uh, these services. Um, I think that's going to be the trend for the next couple of years um, and it's, it's truly exciting because it gives news organizations perhaps an opportunity to step away from the problematic advertising environment.
1: Do you think that that will, you know, coming back to those questions of, like, filter bubbles, do you think that will change that do you think that'll improve that or like is it still too early to tell do we basically need to run the experiment like in the real world yeah
3: yeah the researcher in me (laughs) is telling me that you can't make any statements unless you've done the research you've done the data the analysis so yeah it's really too early to tell um but it's a really interesting space to watch
1: and what do you think is driving that is it just the value of the data or is it the broader that weird mix of the intersection of you know, a big platform decides to do something, a small platform responds. Then there's some money involved. Like, is it mm. like the is it the the actual system that sits above things, or is it is it a different kind of set of pressures?
3: Yeah. So, so with regards to Google's d- decision to phase out third-party data collection. Um, that's, that's been the result of years and years of advocacy in consumer privacy. Um, so we're now seeing, you know, big companies and big platforms seriously taking into consideration, you know, user rights uh, to privacy within the design yeah. of their platforms.
1: That's, re- that's really interesting, especially when it comes to things like sensitive data, you know, obviously things like, you know, gender and identity mm. and like individual representation. Do is that, are those areas a factor, are you finding those areas are a factor in your research?
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, um, And and this reminds me of something, a technology that I really want to talk about, um, which is, you know, content moderation within social media. Um, So, um, yeah, another area of of news and media uh, within this value chain that we've seen, you know, a, a real expansion in the scope of automation is automated content moderation on platforms. And this is very much a direct result um, of the COVID-19 pandemic, right? So we, we understand that within these content moderation systems, uh, there have always been some, you know, degree of automation happening. So uh, from the, the very crude filtering of, um, you know, keywords and phrases on social media to, you know, proactive filtering of, um, you know, for really extreme content like child uh, trisex- sexual abuse materials or extremist propaganda, um you know some amount of automation has always existed in these um systems but with the covid-19 pandemic the, the general trend that we're seeing now is the kind of work that was done by you know uh, human moderators are now being automated and human moderators um who who are usually you know paid really low wages from developing countries usually um and are being automated and now um uh, the use of, um, you know, machine learning classifiers are really mainstream in these large platforms.
0: And it's such a complex issue because as we've heard, there've been a lot of whistleblowing reports from companies saying these are some of the worst treated employees in the Mm. tech industry. It can be quite a a traumatic job to do. So there are some real reasons why you would want to take a job Mm -hmm. like this and automate it. But then it's the, the cost, you know, it's so important to get this right. Mm. You know, at the edges, um, the, I guess it's quite an extreme case. Uh we do not want to stop talking there. However, uh, we think we're just going to take a quick break and hear some music and um, and just take a little pause. We are in the middle of an amazing conversation with Dr. Dang Nguyen, who is a research fellow at the RMIT University node of the ARC Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision-Making in Society. You'll want to stick around for the rest of this chat. Dan, what have you got for us? We've
2: got uh, the new one from uh, Samara Mazzola.
0: Independently yours, R.
2: 102.7. 7.34.
0: Uh, by Intuit, Dan, Paul and Vanessa here. In the middle of a conversation with Dr. Dung Nguyen, um, I'll remind anyone who's just joining us that they are a research fellow at the RMIT University node of the ARC Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision Making and Society. Um, they've got a new report uh, that came out about uh, how all of this emergent AI and automated decision making have been affecting news and media and are continuing to, you know, drive changes and um, bring up a whole range of challenges in this space. We were just touching on some of the moderation and curation Hmm. challenges in the sector. Um, Can you talk about, you know, other than the moderation side, um, how some of these these issues might appear to a regular consumer and and where they might be coming up and, Hmm. you know, as they're trying to, you know, maybe they come across something bad and they're trying to flag it and how does does automation factor into that sort of part of the equation?
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, And, yeah, I was just picking up on your point that, you know, Perhaps this is an area of news and media that we want to see automated if the technology works well because it's it's really kind of hard on the human moderators to be exposed to, you know, damaging content day in, day out and have to make a decision on whether this is content that should be kept on the platform or not, right? Yes,
0: you worry with that sort of exposure that your your sensitivity would go down and maybe Mm. you just wouldn't wouldn't be able to to tell anymore, you know, oh, this isn't as bad as the thing I saw the other day.
3: Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, and I think, well, when I think about content moderation, um, I, I usually think about what happened in Myanmar in 2017, um, and which I think we all remember—the um, election, um, yeah—and and you know the events that leading up to um, you know violence against the Rohingyas in the same year. So. Meta or you know Facebook at the time really had uh, a hard time um, detecting hate speech against the Rohingyas on their platform uh, because around that time you know two years before um, of all of the human moderators that they have on their team only two spoke. Uh, Burmese um, and the problem was compounded by you know gaps in their technical capabilities to, to uh, detect Burmese content as well because the interesting thing about Myanmar is it's the, it, the only country in the world where you know social media and computer users didn't use Unicode. Um, it's for those of us who aren't familiar with uh, uh, Unicode, it's an encoding scheme uh, that allows, you know, languages and characters to be uh, presented, uh, represented on computers. Um, and instead, most social media users in uh, Myanmar used uh, Zagi, which is a local alternative. Um, and... Um, the, the thorny thing is, you know, content composed in, uh, with Zaggy is incomprehensible to Unicode users and vice versa. So at the time, um, you know, Facebook really had to rely on their translation tool from Burmese to English, uh, which uh, was really quite terrible because they rely on Unicode content. Um, so um, Facebook did kind of a, 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 an external review of their, their capabilities the next year and actually concluded that they didn't do enough um, to help prevent atrocities and, you know, um, uh, uh, um, prevent, um, you know, actual violence to be incited as, as a result of their platform. And to their credit, they actually um, have since built out a lot of capabilities in automated uh, content detection um, and also help with the transition of uh, the Burmese uh, Zagi to Unicode.
0: I guess that example does show exactly how complicated the Mm. problems they're trying to solve are. You just have to be one dialect away Mm. from something that's not covered in a release yet. So it's very expensive and time consuming to build the capability to cover all of these use cases. But You have to do it, Mm, you know.
3: Exactly. Yeah. And so when people talk about, you know, the the breathless capabilities of these uh, latest technologies or the latest, you know, large language models, uh, what I'm really concerned about is whether, you know, the same capabilities apply in languages other than English or, you know, in societies other than, you know, English speaking societies. Um, And so that's an area of research, an emergent area of research that I'm really passionate about.
1: And those, I mean, it's kind of it's it's almost like a technical blind spot and a cultural blind spot, mm. and probably like a values bl- blind spot all all rolled into one. I'm curious that just to to get it get your sense of you know where how those values are being encoded in, into the systems and what your research is sort of uncovering about you know issues. Of, I mean, obviously, we're talking about a, a very significant example there. Mm but even at kind of smaller levels where those values are encoded like things of equity and fairness and what Mm. what your research is revealing around that
3: Hmm. Yeah, so um, it is it's too early to, to, right. to, to, to give a, 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 a solid assessment of, wha- of how these models are faring in terms of, you know, the values that we all care about, like fairness and equality and so on. Um, but what I have been able to see, though, um, is as, as, as the latest developments within the generative AI world is this rush for governments around the world to start building the sovereign capability around generative AI. So Singapore, for example, just announced a plan to invest $70 million into building um, a pan-southeast Asian um, you know, a generative model uh, that's sensitive to the nuances of the languages within the region. But also, what I found really interesting in their wording is that these models would be uh, more sensitive and more attuned to the cultural values of the region. Um, so, if you're like me, uh, you know, a student of um, Asian politics and Asian societies, uh, this is actually reminding me of the discourse of the Asian values ideology of the late 80s and early 90s. Nineties, mm. um, where you know countries around Southeast Asia having come, come having come out of a war, uh, starting to really advocate for like a regional identity, um, we might be seeing a revival of that discourse uh, with generative AI. And
1: at, at that level, where it is, um, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a large investment, mm. are there tensions between government? regulation and government sort of like technical ambition and like is Hmm. that is that part of the the sort of the push and pull of the system
3: i think so um and um uh it's funny you should mention regulation because um there is currently you know a, a gap in 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 both the political will and in the capability uh for countries, you know, uh say in the Southeast Asian region to to regulate these models. Uh we, we we're all familiar that um the AI Act just finalized its wordings uh, just yesterday, I think. Um so I think that's going to be a model for, for, for many countries around the world to follow.
0: Yeah. Um I we haven't quite touched on it but we've been adjacent. Um I've been thinking about the preponderance of deep fakes and the idea of um state actors manipulating uh the sort of the news media and having incentives to you know to um influence foreign elections and that sort of Mm. thing and and just and how much we've actually been seeing going on in the last few years Mm. um in in places like the usa Mm. and it's not just you know um little countries who don't have, you know, their own massive tech companies pushing large language models at the moment. So um, Mm. I wonder, you know, how can organisations like news organisations and platforms effectively tackle some of these issues Mm. um, while preserving like the integrity Mm. of of the media that they push out?
3: Mm. Yeah, well, coming from a a research uh, centre, my, 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 my initial reaction is, you know, you need more research and, and, you know, and new innovative methods that you use in research. So another project that I'm really excited about within the centre that we're doing and we'll be piloting at the moment is um, the the Mirror World project where we're mobilising a method called the social cyber range. Um, and, and what's essentially happening in this project is we're building, you know, simulations of mainstream platforms um, using you know, what we know about... Uh, how they operate, and then use generative AI to generate a large number of um, messages or content with varying sentiments and varying stances, and then test in a very controlled environment how these contents um, operate and and how they perform within these platforms. Um, I think that's a that that's one of the promising approaches uh, to give us more um, evidence to to then you know proactively deal with these problems. Should we
0: expect as consumers to see tools to help with deep fake detection anytime
3: soon? Uh, definitely, I think many of those are in the works. Um, how uh, you know you know you know you know how soon until we could see them uh, operate effectively is is a big question at the moment
0: yes exactly and then you know the the social media constraints on on the dissemination mm. of um deep fake material their their approaches so far have really failed to mm. um to be able to detect and stop the dissemination because it's so easy to take a video of a video or mm. an image of an image and completely change the um you know the sort of way you can Tag and recognize that piece mm-hmm. of media, it effectively becomes another piece of media. Yeah. And uh, it's just been so, so challenging. Mm. And then, in terms of the generative tools now being in the hands of everybody so cheaply, so easily, you'd have to think the volume issue. Would be increasingly relevant that so much more of this could be made theoretically. Yeah,
3: exactly. So yeah, I, I know that it, it's it's probably problematic to to think about you know fighting automation with more automation, <laughs> yeah. but that seems to be where we're heading. <laughs> you know? Oh gee, yeah.
0: All of the uh, Mech Warrior cartoons have uh, prepared <laughs> me well for this 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 reality.
1: And do you see just on a practical level? Do you think that that is where we will end up? Just layers upon layers of like, basic you know, hmm. tools in your browser designed to kind yeah. of inoculate you against all this yeah. material?
3: Yeah, look, I think I think automation will be, you know, an important part of the picture. But I don't think, you know, we, we'll get to a point where, you know, uh, humans will be completely replaced within these processes. Um, um, you know, at the moment, you know, media workers, you know, human moderators are still very much part of how these systems function. Um, So in a way, you know, our, our, our labor is kind of, resistant to being automated away uh, in in that sense. I've got that to look forward to.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We certainly do. Hey, if if you could leave our audience with uh, one thought, uh, what would that be?
3: Yeah, and again, sorry to be banging the research (laughs) drum so loud in this episode, but we we really desperately need more investment in research. Um, You know, the sort of research infrastructure that allows, um, you know, academics to work across disciplines. You know, so um, research infrastructure to allow our computer scientists to build simulations of platforms to then understand how they work, Um, research infrastructure to help us to do, uh, you know, data donation projects. Projects that uh, give citizen scientists a sense of agency over mm. their participation um, uh, on uh, the, the findings of these projects. And to echo
0: what you're saying, like time is really a factor here. You know, these models, you know, the data that things are trained on, mm. um, the volume of that data, everyone's starting now and and, you know, collecting things and already has certain things. But the longer you wait the less of that you have to work on, the less you understand, the more um, other places in competition with you um, sort of leapfrog and it may not be possible to catch up in so many areas. Hmm. So it's both on the commercial side but also in the research side, you know, I think we need to be progressing. Hmm. Um, very interesting. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking to Dr. dung Yuen and um, once again I'll say... You are an incredible representative of the ARC Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision Making in Society, associated with RMIT, uh, but multi-nodal with <laughs> nodes all over the place. Uh, a Perfect mirror of the sort of network that you're in, which is fantastic. And I do hope that people look up your work at admscentre.org.au, and perhaps they'll get to be involved as little, you know, research subjects. That would be fantastic. Well, research participants. Participants. <laughs> wow. <Well, laughs> Not, not Some surprise. of <laughs> them <laughs> may be the subjects. I'm just saying. Uh, you don't call it the Mirror Project for nothing. All right. Thanks so much for your time this evening. Thank you.
2: You're listening to Bite Into It on Triple R. It's just gone 7:48. We're going to hear a quick track, and then we'll be back to bring the show home for the year. Yes. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rr.org.au to find out how.
0: 750 you're listening to Triple R with bite into it and our last show for the year. It's lovely to have you out there with us. We've got Dan Salmon here and Paul Callahan. I'm Vanessa Tohoka and We have weird news of the week. This one's going out to Warren. Uh, We miss you, Warren. Whether you're in Portugal or Spain, uh, seems like you're having a hell of a good time and learning lots of interesting things, uh, which is perhaps different to ChatGPT. The the hype of the week has been that ChatGPT may be becoming lazier. What is going on? Uh, And I just think that uh, it's possible that media outlets have run out of angles for ChatGPT and (laughs) they're like, oh, I had this weird result. What can we say? And uh, it it is true. If you hop hop on the open AI forums, you will see developers saying, hey, has anyone had some weird responses like this? And what what some of them have been saying is that um, they're getting responses like – They're putting in a query, hey, chat GPT, you know, here's an indicative few rows of an Excel sheet. Could you, you know, take this list of names and blah, blah, blah and fill out the Excel for me? And they're getting responses like, hey, so-and-so, so so what I've done is I filled out the first few rows, but, um, you know, you can just continue on in the same fashion and uh, there you go, Bob's your uncle. Uh, Of course, it's not quite as... Uh, colloquial and um, sophisticated a speaker as that. I'm it, overstating.
2: It sounds like ChatGPT has become everyone's boss. Is that about right?
0: <laughs> well, um, what has happened since then is that OpenAI has admitted that it is an issue, but the company isn't quite sure why yet. <laughs> and they're saying uh, there there are a few hypotheses and they've, they've heard our feedback since... Um, the 11th of November and what have you. But this story only really broke a couple of weeks ago. It's
1: it's interesting that, that, you know, we sort of have seen this idea of like a prompt engineer arising. We're going to end up with like prompt doctors, like basically like any type of human kind of self-care or like caring profession.
0: But it is so true. The research that came out of Meta around the concept of um, starting your prompt with take a deep breath and consider this step-by-step, eliciting much more solid responses, um, should you know, as we've said, not make us draw the conclusion that we need to coddle this AI as if it is, you know, an anthropomorphizer, as you said, Dan. Mm. But it's more about what those particular terms mean in um Relation to other words yep. like that and other sentences like that.
2: Has anyone considered that the uh, alternative explanation of this is, in fact, that we've reached the singularity and that the uh, chat GPT is, in fact, as lazy as humans are? Stop with the singularity. <laughs> Stop
0: with the Ah, sing- uh, no. No, I- I'm not really on the as singularity a person,
2: side. I am fine yeah. with that. I'm totally happened. okay with that. It's but fine. It's, it, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with it too.
0: Look, most developers are lazy people and um, I believe I saw research saying, you know, someone tried to quantify what laziness was and said 68% of people are lazy, if that's the definition. And (laughs) Anyway, we'll have to ask Dr. Jen about this at some point. Um, But first of all, I don't think we need to worry about people being lazy and I don't think we need to worry about ChatGPT being (laughs) lazy because it cannot... There's have that quality.
2: <laughs> no, it's there, an algorithm. There's nothing not lazy about being smart about getting Every, other people to do the work for you. Everything
0: it's not doing right, we've programmed it not to do exactly. So anyway, we will we'll only learn from this and uh, we'll report back. But. Not until next
2: year. Not until next year. <laughs> uh, by, by which point, ChatPTL will be running more than it already is now.
0: What else has happened in continuing?
1: Continuing Continuing in the vein of people who aren't lazy, let's talk about some astronauts. Please. Uh, and, slight overachievers. And slight overachievers. Um... This, be, this was certainly news to me and maybe news to all of you. Uh, apparently, uh, at some point early this year, uh, a tomato went missing on the International Space Station. Finally, um,
0: the crime that we've been waiting to solve. The Where's the podcast?
1: So, uh Probably many of you may know this. I certainly didn't. But like in the ISS, uh, they do a bunch of experiments about how different types of fruit and vegetable grow uh, and what the impact of lack of gravity is on nutrients. Um, and people, the astronauts got to take a little sample home, but they were very explicitly told not to eat it because they, <laughs> because they weren't sure of, of, of the specific impact. But sadly, one of those tomatoes went missing and it was a whole sort of conspiracy. Oh, about but it went, it
0: went missing on Earth, not on no, the no, it ISS. it went missing
1: on the space, the oh. space station. It was a conspiracy about whether or not someone had eaten it, whether or not the <laughs> particular eaten it. All these accusations were being thrown around. Finally, though, this tomato has turned up. Oh, that's so right. So it's, it's safe. It just yeah. floated somewhere. It just yeah, floated somewhere. Out of camera. Got, got hidden somewhere in all the many nooks and crannies. Oh, that's hilarious. But um, just, as a, just as a little story to, to finish the year on,
2: Oh, I love that. I, I love it, but also that as you were telling the story, Paul, I was fully expecting it to be that, like a kind of like a spe- uh, international space station version of who took my stuff out of the fridge in the office. <laughs> who, I didn't moved my who, who moved my, my cheese? cheese. Who moved my cheese. To- that was my tomato. I've, I have grew it myself. And um, if you don't put it back, I'm going to uh, go to HR. Someone it's should make
0: a little play of these, you know, incredibly socially adept people as astronauts have to be. Um Getting to the end of their tether, just based on a tomato. Based
2: on having no. Was it a cherry tomato? Sorry. Do That's we know? A tipping point. Like, <laughs> was it
0: easy to hide?
2: <laughs> did it get stuck in a vent or something? Did they actually explain where? We it was questions. Or did it People just have appear? questions, Paul. You I, can't just bring this up
0: with no details. Some
1: of these questions are unanswered. <laughs> so, hey, like, let's keep a little bit of mystery. Where was that tomato?
0: All right, all history. right, we'll 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 let you off the hook at this <laughs> point. Um, hey, in events and opportunities, very briefly, Digital Rights Watch has teamed up with Access Now and the Global Encryption Coalition Steering Committee to pen a joint letter calling upon the eSafety Commissioner to protect privacy and safety for everyone by ensuring that end-to-end encryption won't be undermined. It's their latest campaign. It looks pretty worthy. Um, if you're interested in checking it out, go to the Digital Rights Watch website and um, find out more. There's a There's a thing you can sign.
2: Hey, on, on New Year's Eve, uh, Linux Users Victoria Tech Help Day is happening in Essendon. How
0: sweet is it's this? It's so cute. And what Start a, what... the new year right. Absolutely. <laughs> Every month,
2: uh, uh, Linux Users Victoria get together on a Sunday to help anyone with the tech, like smartphones, PCs, anything that runs on Linux. If you're a newcomer with a tech issue and you want to give it a try, head down, finish your year with some wholesome tech learning uh, at the Little Cardboard Cafe, uh, 356 Vale Road in Essendon. It's hosted by Dion, who's a member of the... Linux Users Victoria and is sponsoring the space on behalf of the Little Cardboard Cafe. Yeah,
0: you can find that event on Humanitix. Uh, so Linux Users Victoria Tech Help Day. Good luck to them. What sweethearts. Hey, it has been a wonderful year. I want to thank all of our various um, hosts for the amazing amount of um, dedication and care they've poured into the show and their expertise, of course, mm. um, over the year. Uh, I want to say a big thank you to uh, Judith Peppard who will be sharing this time slot over summer um that is a very uh, credible broadcaster uh, her program will be undercurrents a road trip through chicago blues Nullarbor caves first people's music environmental activism and so much more judith we can't wait to spend some beautiful summer wednesday evenings with you thanks to our guest this evening dr dung nguyen and um To all of our hosts, as I've said, thanks to our talks producer, Lou Lin, and um, sometimes Adam fills in as well, so we we appreciate his help, Adam Christou. We've been bied into it. We will not be back next Wednesday evening. We'll be back next year.
2: For year 31.
0: Year 31, yes. Oh, do check out our article in the Trip magazine. We're sorry we couldn't post things from every single bright broadcaster ever, but um, we, we did have a good crack in a limited time period. Um, Thanks to Kat for pulling that edition together. And
2: thank you, Vanessa, for all the work you've done this year. And Paul, it's 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 been it's been a great year. We've 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 lost some team members over the year, and it's been we it's, have, it's, and it's, we've it's really felt their loss. because
0: everyone's so good.
2: Everyone's so good. But we 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 will be back bigger, better, and stronger in 2024.
0: We may even have a little recruitment drive on. So you know, for enthusiasts out there, um, the DMs are always open, and on whatever social platform I can find. Uh, <laughs> hey. Do stay tuned for what I believe is the international pop underground up next. If Anthony Carew, um, lots of love to you and your families. Thanks for being our uh, beloved listeners, and uh, yeah, keep well out there. Hi, this is Vanessa Tejolker. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.